today we are digging deep and giving you an untold tale of comic book history and it's a big one did dc comics ask marvel to take over their publishing in the mid 80s were you about to get marvel's superman batman wonder woman and the justice league was john byrne actually about to do superman for marvel two years prior to him doing superman with dc comics i'm gonna share the stories with you from the people who were on the scene who were there who were about to make these deals we're going to discuss all of this and even more on a bonus edition of Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. We here at Observations we obsess over comic books and superheroes and movies based on superheroes and comic books and streaming shows, television shows, video games, toys, even even lunchboxes. We, we've talked about lunchboxes and Saturday morning cartoons and merchandise, all of it. We cover it here. We have for the better part of three years now. I am so thrilled to be able to talk comic superheroes and how they have blown up over my lifetime with you. And they continue to get bigger. I mean, the, the, the box office uh, sheen may have come off some of the bigger, bigger films of the last several years in the uh, wake of wrapping everything up very tidy as they did with Endgame. But there's never been more of them. There, I mean, e even in what we call a down year for superhero comics, comic book movies, you're getting so many of them. You're getting like, in, in some cases, it's like, hey, you want even more mediocrity? We got it right here. Obviously, they don't all hit it out of the park. Actually, very few ever have. But the ones that are great are great. Just like not all mafia movies and not all Westerns. And not all rom-coms are great, but the, the great ones stick with us. But I never in a million years thought that the comic book superheroes that I grew up with would make it uh, to, to, to the big movie theaters, the big screens. So I would never uh, expect to have seen something like X2 when, when the sequel to X-Men came out and, and, and see the, the, the refining uh, of the special effects and to see that version of Wolverine and Colossus and, and Cyclops and everybody, uh, that just blew me away. X-Men was my favorite comic book growing up. And so, so watching the movie franchise expand and then later being able to contribute. Yes, people, I make comic books. I have been making comic books for 38 years. Uh, currently on the stands, uh, what, what, what I was speaking of about contributing to the X-Men universe, I, I built my own wing out in the 90s. I created Cable and Domino and Deadpool. All of th all three of which appeared in uh, Deadpool 2 back in the summer of 2018. You might have seen them. Zazie Beetz uh, as Domino, Josh Brolin as Cable, and of course Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool. They, they, there was even Shatterstar, and of course Marina Baccarin, Vanessa, I, I also cr uh, created her, added her to the mythos. So uh, it's been a thrill in my lifetime to contribute to the fav my favorite franchise. But that's what I'm talking about. Like, wow, I got in. I loved the comic books. I went to work in those offices. I, I, I was able to create a whole cachet of characters. They, they went on to become bestsellers. We sold 5 million copies, the second best-selling comic book of all time, the second best-selling debut, uh, maybe the number one selling book with all original characters in it uh, as the leads, which you'd have with Cable and Deadpool and Domino. So yeah, I, I, I've been very excited and to actually see them become movie stars themselves has been absolutely thrilling. 
This is a bonus episode of Rob's Observations. Uh, we've been adding adding some to our regular rotation, and you have responded with some of our biggest listening uh, analytics ever. You are listening in record numbers, and again, I appreciate it so much. I'm able to that, that we're able to share this stuff and get down and get dirty and 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 talk about the history of comics because I feel like I had a front row seat to all of these comics becoming the big uh, blockbusters that that they become that they have become and and becoming the merchandising uh superstars that they've become. I mean right now right what I keep seeing on my feed is the advanced toys for the new X-Men cartoon that's going to be a revisitation of the famous Fox cartoon that we all loved. I mean I loved it. I was only in my 20s and it featured characters I created. It 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 had Cable and for one brief minute uh, uh Deadpool in there. It had uh Strife. There was all these great you know, versions of the characters that I grew up loving as well as the characters that I created, and they're revisiting that. It's called X-Men 97. Uh, it, it was delayed. It's going to be on later next year on Disney+, Plus. but the merchandise hit, and all I see is people going to Target and Walmart and the big box stores and not being able to find these action figures, so that's really fun. It's really fun to watch people uh, just, you know, pour over the merchandising. The merchandising is what we love. As I speak to you, I am facing on my desk. I have two uh, on, on the desk that I record to you. I have a giant Deadpool statue that I got around last Christmas. It's one of my favorites. It, next to a Lady Deadpool that I had to move over here. Uh, next to a Josh Brolin Hot Toys cable figure. I have some Shogun Warriors, which are toys that I dug as a kid. I have four of those, the miniatures, the die cast right next to me. I have a Hasbro uh, Deadpool on a moped with Dogpool and with a... <laughs> <laughs> with Squirrelpool, uh, I have a statue of X-Force costume Deadpool, and I have a Mondo figure of the animated uh, X-Men cartoon Wolverine standing next to me. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. 14 uh, pieces of merchandise, statues, and action figures are right before me uh, as, as I record this for you. And I have a Raiders of the Lost Ark original Indiana Jones poster from the, uh, the original 81 release. Uh, looming over me. So the merchandise is great and watching people flock to get that X-Men merchandise and having it sold out and people go, oh, I only got Bishop. They were sold out of everything else or I only got Wolverine and they were sold out of everything else. It's exciting. It's it, it, it's really, you know, what we're talking about, how we got to point A from point A to point Z. But along the way, comic book history has taken some really crazy twists and turns and we're going to share one of them today. If you, if you tuned into this, you already know. It's called Superman by Marvel Comics. Yep. Yep. That almost happened, people. And we're going to talk about it. We are going to digest that today. It happened in 1984. And let me tell you something. First, we have to visit the DC Comics of 1984. We have to, uh, we really have to get our heads around where was DC Comics in 1984. I can tell you right now, in, in, in 1984, I was... 15, 16 years old. Started the year 15, turned 16. And it was it was a really amazing time for me and my relationship with DC Comics. I preferred them at the time to Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics still was doing X-Men, but I didn't like who was drawing X-Men. It went into a period of where I was really the most as, as detached as I could ever possibly be with that title. Uh, the Avengers, I no longer cared for. It was not drawn by people who excited me, not in, in, in any way, shape, or form in the way that it had from the time that I was like seven to 12, that was like the sweet spot. John Byrne, George Perez, incredible talents. Uh, 
Jim Starlin, even uh, th th those are the guys that rock my world on, on the Avengers. It just seemed like uh, Avengers had kind of fallen by the wayside. I liked Fantastic Four. John Bernard had uh, turned his attention to that, but he was in his like fourth year of contributing to the book at that time, and it was kind of beginning to, you could tell he had told the stories that he cared about the most. The best Doctor Doom story had been told, the best Silver Surfer, the best Galactus story had been told. Marvel was just uh, in a weird transitionary phase. Frank Miller, who was my favorite writer-artist at Marvel Comics, had crossed the street to go work at DC Comics and make a series for them called Ronin, which was kind of a cyberpunk, kick-ass, Euro-inspired uh, manga. It was like East versus East meets West. I think Frank Miller would, would confirm that to you. The, the Ronin stuff was really... Uh, interesting, possibly ahead of its time, didn't do as well as it, as DC had expected, but it set the stage for what they really wanted out of him, which was Frank Miller to do Batman, and we have covered those sections of history numerous times. There are over 320 episodes in the Observation Observations catalog, and you should you should absolutely seek them out. Uh, DC was where I was getting. DC and Independence were what was exciting me the most. The stuff from uh, companies called Pacific, First Comics, uh, Kamiko. They, they, there was a new sense of wonder and excitement about about comic books, and I was all about the independence. But DC was crushing it. Uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez had achieved an enormous. They had achieved enormous success with their version of the Teen Titans, the new Teen Titans, with Cyborg and Starfire and Raven, and they had really uh, capitalized on the fact that the X Men had gone stale for a few years. They had absolutely following Paul Smith. Uh, in in 1983, I just I was it is the the point that fans of my generation will tell you we disconnected the most because the X Men had all always boasted the very best artistic teams for like since since 1976 and here we are 1984 1983 and 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 the art team and and uh, the people that they were rallying to do the X Men just were not interesting there was no real innovation going on there Chris would be awakened years later when Mark Silvestri and Art Adams uh, came on the scene but this was what I called the darkest time for Marvel's top selling book and look here the deal here's the deal it was still the top selling book they also had big licenses in GI Joe and Transformers that were pushing Marvel during this period but over at DC Teen Titans was was number one they had just spun it off into two, two separate books. They had restarted the Teen Titans on really nice paper. George Perez, Marv Wolfman were pouring their guts out to show us as fans how much they appreciated us. And George was really doing uh, double duty. DC had uh, some really great Green Lantern stories coming out at the time. Len Wein, Dave Gibbons, really highly entertained by them. They had a, they had a book called Batman and the Outsiders that had launched that was a reboot. I'll tell you what wasn't selling well for DC at the time, and we've covered it. We've showed you the numbers. We have statistically gone uh, through the the, the numbers. There, there's episodes of observations called the numbers. S several of them called the numbers, and uh, and and, and a, maybe one of them is called the rank and file. But it it gives you sales figures over the 80s and how much Batman had lost in sales. And we've covered several times how Batman had been shedding titles. They were canceling titles with Batman because Batman was no longer the 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 franchise that he once was. Not until two years from now, Frank Miller would do his deed with the Dark Knight and and reboot everything. And then everyone would do Frank Miller's Batman uh, through today. In 2023, everyone is still doing Frank Miller's Batman. That's absolutely how incredibly important and impactful the work that he did was, but not in 1984. They put Batman on a super team uh, 
to 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 appeal to basically a, a Teen Titans and a Legion of Superheroes dynamic. The Legion of Superheroes, the heroes of the 30th century in the DC universe, was also a top seller for DC at the time, and they had spun that off into two books as well. So. DC was in the process of exploiting their, their biggest franchises, which were Titans and Legion. Even Superman was doing slightly better than Batman at the time, but they had also had some real success in uh, doing some interesting uh, formats like, like Ronin with Frank Miller and Camelot 3000, which we don't talk about enough here, by Mike W. Barr and Brian Boland was a futuristic take on the legend of King Arthur and the sword of Excalibur uh, as, as the Knights of the Round Table are... Uh, reawakened uh, from all of the different bodies that they have been reincarnated in uh, in order to stage a, de- a, a, a last defense for Earth against a warring, invading alien, uh, alien faction. It is brilliant. It is amazing. It, it, it showed what DC was possible when they rolled the dice. But other than the Titans and the Legion and stuff like Camelot 3000, uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot that I was invested in. I, I, the, the, the Superman book was stale. The Batman books were semi-stale. Flash, for me, was stale. Green Lantern, I liked. Really liked it a lot. The Justice League was going through a weird period where they were trying to emulate what was going on in the Teen Titans, and it met with a lot of... Uh, how, do, how do you say that? It was polarizing. It was extremely polarizing uh, because because some of the characters were like uh, just just reflecting obvious trends in music and pop culture at the time. There was a character named Vibe. There was a character named Gypsy. Trust me, I was there. The fan reaction to them was not uh, optimal for DC. So that's where uh, DC Comics stood. As as much as I didn't really love what was coming out from Marvel, they were still outselling uh, DC like maybe three to one at this at this point. It, it, it was extreme. There, there, were, there were months in this period of the 80s that maybe your top 15 comics, uh, 14 of the 15, 13 of the 15 would be Marvel because uh, they still had Walt Simonson doing Thor over, over there, over at Marvel. And, and, and just the brand name of Marvel was just now so naturally outselling DC. So that, that sets the stage for what is to come. And this is Superman... When DC Comics initiated, they called, they picked up the phone and called Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief, the top dog, the guy that had put Frank Miller on Daredevil, put Walt Simonson on Thor, uh, really balanced out what was going on on the X-Men in the last year where it was very, very political, uh, lot of, lot of hot tempers between Chris Claremont and John Byrne, landed that plane, allowed John Byrne to spin off and give us those great Fantastic Four uh, you know, issues that he started rolling out in 81 and 82. Uh, he, Jim, Jim Shooter, I, I am on the record, he is my favorite editor-in-chief in the history of Marvel Comics. I, I think the work that he that he uh, presided over during that time speaks for itself. It is the bronze, the bronze era is among the strongest eras ever for Marvel Comics. The Avengers, the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Daredevil, Spider-Man has a great... Uh, running it, during this time, I mean, it's it's just phenomenal. Marvel two and one, Marvel team up. Uh, there there are so many great Power Man and Iron Fist. I mean, I can go on and on and on. He gets a call. Jim Shooter, the EIC, the top dog of the publishing arm, gets a call. February nineteen eighty four. A gentleman named Bill Sarnoff. Bill Sarnoff was, as Jim Shooter calls him, the big cheese. 
His exact title was unknown to Jim, but he knew that he was the head of all publishing, all publishing of Warner Communications, and that DC Comics fell under his purview. Bill called Jim because Jim's secretary told him that Bill Sarnoff was on the phone. This is February of 1984. And he takes the call. Bill introduces himself. And Jim comments that as if this is necessary. This is directly from Jim's sharing of this, Jim Shooter himself. Uh, And what Bill wanted to talk to him about was licensing the publishing rights for the entire DC Comics category to Marvel Comics. Okay, so sit down. You're like, this didn't happen. No, this, this happened. Uh, this is incredible. This is an incredible piece of comic book history that it has taken me three plus years to share with you, but it is legit. Okay. It is absolutely legit. Bill introduced himself and told him that he wants to talk about publishing the licensing rights for all of the DC characters, all of the DC characters to Marvel comics. Jim Shooter writes, holy, (laughs) holy moly, Bill man. Bill said more or less, that Marvel, from from Bill, from Bill Sarnoff, the top director of Warner Communications Publishing, he said that more or less, from what he could see, Marvel seemed to be able to turn substantial profits on publishing comic books, as opposed to DC, which was consistently losing money, and he emphasized lots of money, and were losing lots of money for a long time. He said, on the other hand, this is him, Bill, talking to Jim Shooter, on the other hand, that The Licensing Corporation of America, the LCA, which was Warner's official licensing arm, had done very well with DC's properties. And he noticed that Marvel didn't seem to do much licensing in comparison to what they were doing. Now, again, you got to realize that what what you're, you're talking about, just from my childhood, the Super Friends, which was on probably six or seven seasons on Saturday morning, uh, all of the lunch pails, the merchandising, the toys. Uh, then you had Wonder Woman on ABC, and, and then for one season over on CBS starring Linda Carter, uh, which was top-rated at first, but didn't really matter the, the 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 ratings in the end because it launched a three-year huge campaign for Wonder Woman everything. And trust me, boys were buying Wonder Woman stuff. I was, but it was also categorized for girls as well, so Wonder Woman really crossed over. Uh, Batman and Superman had their own cartoons. On CBS, they had done spinoffs outside of the, the of the Super Friends. This is before the 1989 uh, Michael Keaton, Tim Burton Batman movie. Obviously, we're, t- we're talking 1984 here. But DC and those characters on school supplies, on your, your folders, on your lunch pails, on your thermoses. Yes, all this stuff was actively used. Uh, on your t-shirts, on your posters, on your calendars. So when DC... When he is able to tell Jim, like, our licensing arm does great, trust me, I was there. I was there. I was a kid. And there was never a time that uh, in in the local drugstores, which there were many more of, uh, there were more, like, CVS-styled stores than there are now back in the 70s. There were a lot of mom-and-pop stores. And whenever you went into there were less, like, Targets, less less department stores, less less big-box stores that you have now, where it's just kind of one giant brand and Targets in this city, in this city, in this city, in Walmart, and those are your big big dogs. I'm talking mom-and-pop drugstores, and some of you from that era will remember Woolworth, and you'll remember, you know... uh, uh, TGNY, that was a popular one uh, in a couple neighborhoods that I went to. But all those places always had DC merchandise stuff. We're talking, we're talking toothpaste, we're talking toothbrushes. I mean, every category. So he said he didn't, he didn't 
feel that Marvel was doing much licensing. Jim injects here and he says, well, I guess the few millions that we made licensing mostly from just Spider-Man was paltry to him, given the fortunes that Superman, Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman had been bringing DC. He said, Jim said that he told him, this president of all publishing at Warner's Communications, he told him that Marvel would be very interested and that he was going to set up a call with the president of Marvel's operations, Jim Galton. And so Jim went to Jim Galton, set this call up, and Galton committed to giving Mr. Bill Sarnoff a call. The very next day, Jim went to check in with Galton, and he asked him if he had spoken to him, and he said, yeah, he, he Jim Galton told Jim, yes, I spoke to Bill Sarnoff, and I told him that we weren't interested in licensing the DC library. Jim freaks out, says, I was absolutely stunned, and many question marks and exclamation points. Why not? Galton said, and uh, and this is with some commentary by Jim Shooter, he goes, this is a prima... <laughs> he goes, basically, I'll, 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 I'll capsulize this. He, he's like, this is uh, evidence of why Jim Galton missed Comic Book 101 in publishing school. He told Jim Shooter that the reason he told Bill Sarnoff they weren't interested is... In in, uh, in in doing the library, he's like, well, obviously, the comic books aren't selling and they must not be very good. Jim writes, great Krypton, in italicized letters to emphasize this point, exclamation point. Jim Shooter, trying not to sound too crazed to his boss, explained that they were great characters, that the DC library had a rich library of characters. And According to Jim, this is Jim's direct words here, he felt that the DC editorial people were frankly doing a poor job with the line of, of books and that Marvel could do better, and then he emphasizes a lot better. He talks Jim Galton, his boss at Marvel, to uh, calling Sarnoff back and telling him that Marvel is giving it serious con- con- consideration. Uh, Jim Shooter left Galton's office with instructions to put together a business plan and to present it to Joey Calamari, the executive vice president of business affairs at Marvel. Jim Shooter says he dedicated three days to putting together that plan. The first part of the business plan was the publishing plan. I decided that they should launch seven titles within Marvel dedicated to the DC characters. Those titles would be as follows. Number one, Superman. Number two, Batman. Number three, Wonder Woman. Number four, Green Lantern. Number five, Teen Titans. Number six, Justice League. Number seven, Legion of Superheroes. So that is what Jim Shooter uh, valued. And, and I'll, I'll repeat it along if, in, in, in case you don't want to go back uh, and, and you're driving along or you're running or you're jogging or you're listening to this. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Teen Titans, Justice League, and the Legion of Superheroes were the seven books that, that that Jim Shooter thought to prioritize if Marvel was going to go through with licensing these books and launching them uh, from, from Marvel Comics. Jim projected that they would sell 39 million copies of, of, those, of, of those, those seven titles and the related issues over the first two years and generating a pre-tax profit, gross revenues, less cost of goods, sold royalty staff, uh, you know, costs, of roughly, he believed that they could generate a profit of $3.5 million, seven figures. He says this was huge money for a comic book publisher in 1984. He said, and that is only with the original seven titles that I proposed. No expansion of those titles. Though if we were doing that well, obviously we would go ahead and add titles, Jim Shooter ads. 
slowly and carefully if I had anything to say about it because he wanted to really prove. Now, you, another thing you need to know about Jim Shooter, he came up at DC Comics before he landed as the top dog and one of the most accomplished writers because his writing on the Avengers is another reason that sucked me in in 1977, 78, 79. Jim Shooter wrote the Korvac saga. He wrote Count Nefaria, um, some of the best, brightest, most intense, engaging stories that the Avengers, has, the Avengers uh, uh, comic had ever seen. He was brilliant. It was up there with the best of whatever Chris Claremont was doing uh, on the X-Men at the time. And and when I bump into other fans of that time from the Bronze Era, people who are my age, the kids of that age, of that era, and I see them in all the different groups that I'm in across social media, the, these are the books that we love the most and we we uh, we we hold in the highest regards together. It, it's not just a little Robbie Liefeld favoritism thing. This is this is like like this is what the consensus would tell you, but. Before he did that, he wrote Legion of Superheroes. He mailed in Superboy stories as a teenager, and DC bought them from him. At, at one point, he was the regular writer on DC Comics, Legion of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, and Jim Shooter was doing this in his teenage years. That's how accomplished and how talented he was. So he has a natural affection for the DC catalog of characters because that's where he came from. So <clears throat> Jim added that he anticipated that he would have to add one or two editors uh, in order to facilitate this. Uh, the actual plan that he gave to Joey Calamari, the VP, uh, is 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 uh, right in front of me, and I'm going to read it. And it goes as follows. It says, from Jim Shooter to Joey Calamari, buying DC Comics. I think we should consider making an offer for the DC Comics library. Their recently published statements of ownership show that their sales are embarrassingly low and that almost across the board, they have fallen during the last year. I think their best known characters, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and one or two others have enormous comic sales potential, which they seem incapable of, de of developing. We could develop that potential and make a lot of money publishing comics featuring those characters. I support, excuse me, I suggest that we license DC's characters for publishing the same way that we license the Star Wars characters. Pay them in advance and guarantee against a very small royalty. Let them keep the licensing and merchandising rights, something they insisted upon the last time they made this offer years back. Maybe we could negotiate a percentage of any increase in licensing and merchandising revenue for us. What's in it for Warner, uh, Warner Communications is, of course, guaranteed no-hassle money. The elimination of a huge overhead cost and the possibility of new life for their dying properties. What is in it for us is the money that we'd make from publishing those characters and the elimination of an irritation intelligent. What he means by elimination of an irritation is elimination of the competition. He says intelligent and creative editorial management can make the DC characters profitable without hurting our own line. I've got a plan if you're interested. Let's discuss it. Everyone at Marvel is CC'd on this letter. This is part of Jim's internal correspondence. Uh, Joey Calamari enthusiastically endorsed Jim Shooter's plan. Jim Galton was still skeptical. He thought that the projections were way too high. He actually says he thought they were crazy high. He sent the plan to circulation. He sent the plan to the circulation department to review. Somebody leaked. Rumors were spreading. My first clue was when John Byrne, again, superstar John Byrne, superstar, Fantastic Four writer, artist John Byrne, superstar, uh, Captain America artist John Byrne, superstar Avengers, superstar uh, Hall of Fame X-Men creator John Byrne, showed up in Jim's off offer, no, excuse, excuse me, showed up in Jim's office, in Jim's office, with a cover for Superman. 
It says Superman first Marvel issue. It wasn't a sketch. It was a full-blown cover. Jim Shooter says, I don't have a copy of it, but I bet John Byrne still has the original. Somebody should ask him to display it on his site if he has not already. He had a full story worked out as well. He really, 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 he writes, wanted to do Superman. I think I remember John Byrne telling me once that he had watched the first Superman film by Dick Donner starring Christopher Reeve over 1,100 times. Then Jim says, when the circulation department uh, had completed their analysis of, the, of, of, of his plan, Jim Galton called him into a meeting to discuss it. He was accompanied in that meeting by Ed Shukin, vice president of circulation, and the direct sales manager, Carol Kalish. I don't think uh, Joey Calamari was present, Jim writes. The VP of finance, Barry Kaplan, was also present. Jim Galton asked what Shukin's take on his numbers was. Shukin said the numbers were ridiculous. Galton smirked at Jim Shooter, and then Shurkin said, we will easily do more than double this, Shukin said. Jim writes, oh, my stars and garters, which was a phrase that the Beast was commonly saying in the pages of the Avengers while he and others wrote it. And so, I mean, imagine, so Galton thinks, yeah, I told you these aren't going to do well, and the guy goes, these, these circulation numbers are ridiculous. They're actually way too low. We will do double this. Uh, so negotiations with Warner Communications began in earnest. And Jim was, in his own words, at that point, then a spectator watching as the suits took over. He said, very soon after that, First Comics, an independent comic company, launched a lawsuit against Marvel Comics and others alleging antitrust violations. One test of anti of an anti-competitive market dominance is a market share of 70% or more. At that time, Marvel had a 69% share of the marketplace and DC was 18%. So I sit here, I tell you that Marvel is outselling DC. There it is. Marvel's market share of the direct market of comic books was 69%. DC was 18%. Now you understand why the guy called Jim Shooter in the first place to initiate this. But again, having close to 70% opens you up to antitrust and another comic book company had sued uh, presumably with the idea that they would break up Marvel because that's what you do in an antitrust. Jim says, I think it's safe to say that when you're being sued under antitrust laws, it's a bad time to devour your late, your largest competitor. On the, under, on the other hand, there is the, we have a clue and they don't, or a superior acumen defense. We considered arguing the defense and pressing on with the deal, but no, ultimately the suits and lawyers decided to play it safe and they backed away from the DC deal at that time. He said, uh, to comment, first comics sued against us was nonsense. They alleged that we had flooded the that we had flooded the market. That our actual increase in releases published during the flood a year from the year before uh, six issues, not series. They alleged that we had used their dominance to fix prices with the printers, a printer called World Color Press, and inflate everyone's costs in the process. They uh, they 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 in. So, so, so basically, again, they said they're flooding the pro, the, the market, and uh, <laughs> the uh, and again, what Jim is saying is the the year prior they had only adds added six new series. So how in how in that uh, under that accusation were they actually flooding? Um, he uh, he said, and, and again, they're trying to tell you that they're fixing uh, uh, 
printer prices and inflating costs with, with their business practices. So it says uh, that in discovery, it came out that we were paying more than everyone else for printing. So, so rather than, uh, you know, prove that Marvel was working with the printer to get people like first comics to pay more. It was proven that Marvel was actually paying more than first comics. So, uh, the end of this first chapter in this is that there is no Superman to be had. No new Marvel comic superhero. Uh, no, no new, no new Marvel comics Superman for then, for now. Jim says, too bad. It would have been fun. So, in short, Marvel's uh, response to DC asking them, Warner's asking them to publish DC was... Uh, probably wisely tabled due to a antitrust suit because Marvel would have clearly gone over the 75, possibly as much as 80% of the market had they taken DC because then you're looking at DC Comics, their, their, their portion dissolving and them not being part of the market anymore and then whatever Marvel was going to make on those comics, then inflating and, and I, I just can see going from 69% to 80 or more. So, Crazy time. Uh, it makes you think that somebody leaked the first comics and that they initiated that lawsuit to, to stop all the craziness. But that doesn't mean that John Byrne didn't write an, 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 an entire first issue uh, on his own, un, unsolicited, and gave it to Jim Shooter. And Jim Shooter then tells us all about it. So, so John Byrne had his sights set during this time on doing... Superman for Marvel. And uh, Jim Shooter has, has has been very clear that he didn't want to show the plot. That's John's plot. But he can tell you what he was pitched and what he read in his recollection of it. He says, uh, it's John Byrne's story to share if he wants to officially. Uh, and Jim Shooter says, it doesn't mean I can't tell you it in my own words as faithfully as I possibly can. He said, John Byrne's 1984 Superman number one was the, the, the first chapter was entitled Krypton. He said, just as in the classic origin, scientist Jor-El has discovered that his world, the planet Krypton, is going to explode sometime soon. Could be, could be today, any day, but surely within months. Jor-El, a member of Krypton's ruling Council of Twelve, uh, warns uh, of, 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 this, of this occurrence shaking the council. The other members refuse to believe that the danger is real. Jor-El is angry. Let them all die then, he decides. He returns home and he talks it over with Lara, who is six months pregnant. He has a plan to save her and their unborn child, at least, to which she tearfully agrees. Jorel is hoping to build a large spacecraft uh, big enough to save a major portion of the Kryptonian population, but time is running out. So he has built a small model of the bigger ship that he proposed, just large enough to hold one adult. He intended to pilot himself on a test flight, but forget that the untested little ship must carry Lara off-world and safely away from Krypton's catastrophic demise. There is no other choice. Jor-El makes preparations with frantic haste as Krypton is rocked by its violent death throes. Jor-El and Lara say their last goodbyes. Uh, the launch is timed perfectly. Jor-El knows that Laura and the fetus will become super powerful as they are affected by the rays of the yellow sun where they are headed. He also knows of an additional factor as well that will help them survive on a world that is their destination. 
Timing of the launch is critical to this mysterious factor. At that perfect moment, Jor-El waves to Laura in the little ship and launches the rocket. Laura looks back at a dying Krypton, which explodes, sending forth a burst of searing radiation. The mysterious additional factor, maybe? John doesn't say specifically. Laura feels the radiation affecting her just before the rocket enters hyperspace. The hyperlight journey takes three months. The second chapter chapter in John Byrne's first issue is called Smallville. Earth, USA, somewhere out in the sticks. 50-something Jonathan and Martha Kent are riding along in their pickup truck. They're farm people, good people. They witnessed the little ship launched months ago by Jor-El crash in a field. They run to investigate. Jonathan pulls the badly injured Laura from the wreckage. Right then and there, with the Kent's help, she gives birth. The child, a boy, yelps when Jonathan slaps him on the butt. He seems unharmed and healthy just before she dies. Laura passes away during this. She names the boy Kal-El. The childless Kents decide to keep the baby. They adopt him and they name him Clark. They successfully convince friends and neighbors that the 50-year-old Martha had been pregnant, but they just kept it secret. No mention of what came of the wreckage of the ship or of Laura's body. At the age of two, at Clark's birthday party, we are introduced to the Langs, good friends of the Kents, and to their infant daughter, Lana. Clark begins to demonstrate fantastic feats of strength, but only the Kents see this. At age 10, Clark is attacked by a bull while crossing a pasture. The bull does its best to kill him, but cannot harm Clark. His clothes are not so lucky. They're shredded. Clark flips the 1,000-pound bull over his head, then runs home to tell his mom and dad about the event. The bull, by the way, survives. Jonathan and Martha caution Clark to keep these things that he can do in secret, lest government or military people find out and come to take him away for who knows what nefarious purposes. At age 15, while playing with his dog, Clark discovers that he can defy gravity. The dog playfully leaps at him, knocking him backward a few steps. Instead of falling into the drainage ditch behind him, though, Clark finds himself hovering over it. After a little practice, Clark learns that he can fly. Meanwhile, Jonathan, in his late 60s at this point, is trying with two other men to physically pull a tractor out of some mud that it's stuck in. The exertion triggers a heart attack, and Jonathan Kent dies. The third chapter is entitled Metropolis. Years later, after graduating at the top of his class from journalism school, Clark is hired as a reporter by Perry White, editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet in Metropolis. He meets brash Jimmy Olsen, a cub reporter, and Lois Lane. Byrne described her as beautiful, but in a city-slick, used sort of way, tussled vaguely rough at the edges. She's the type who would curse a lot. Clark is instantly infatuated. She welcomes Clark to the Daily Planet. Lois and Clark, both superb reporters, become not-so-friendly rivals, despite Clark's infatuation with her. He allows her to win on occasion and uh, get the story first sometimes. Perry White urges Clark to try harder. Women and children first is for lifeboats, or little rockets, I suppose. White somehow knows a, a big story is about to break and tells Clark to get after it. The next day, the president is taken captive by terrorists. Lois investigates by traditional means. Clark uh, secretively uses his superpowers to locate the farmhouse where the president is being held and alerts the authorities. They storm the place, five people die in the raid, and the president is gravely injured. Clark then realizes if he had handled it himself, he could have saved the president without any loss of life. The light bulb goes on in his head. He talks it over with his adoptive mother, Martha, and they agree that he should stop hiding his powers and use them for good. To protect those close to him, he has to keep it secret that he, Clark, is the hero that he now 
means to become. When he was a kid, Martha made him wear glasses that he didn't need to make to make him more human. He will start wearing the glasses again to help disguise himself further when he is Clark Kent, a point of difference from his hero self. Martha, anticipating this day long ago, bought red, blue, and yellow cloth from which to make a costume. Apparently, as Clark aged, he developed something of an aura, perhaps the more and more protected his clothing when he did super things. So he will make, she will make him a skin-tight uniform to take the best possible advantage of his aura. The fourth chapter, titled The Man of Tomorrow, sometime later, a caped costume figure breaks up an armored car robbery and frees hostages. Bullets bounce harmlessly off his chest. He turns the miscreants over to the police and he flies away. The caped man spectacularly rescues a stuck tramway car. Then he pulls subway cars full of people from a collapsed tunnel. Lois Lane is there, reporting. She reaches the caped man before he can fly away. She does not recognize him as Clark Kent. She is as attracted to this caped caped hero as Clark Kent was to her. Lois wants to tell this mysterious hero this mysterious hero's story. She asks him questions, which he answers. This will be her greatest coup ever as a reporter. Sorry, the Cape Man. He had already given the story to someone else. Clark Kent. He then flies away. Elsewhere, a shadowy figure watches television news accounts of the exploits of this Cape Man. He reads the Daily Planet article by Clark Kent, which has the bold headline, Superman, mystery hero promises to battle for truth, justice, and the American way. The shadowy figure is criminal mastermind Lex Luthor who decides that he is going to have to get rid of Superman. End of first issue. That is the first, the launch issue, the Superman number one that John Byrne had proposed to Jim Shooter that would have been a comic book produced by Marvel had had they been given the green light, had they gone, gone forward with a licensing deal. Now, I am telling you, we have talked about it on this show before that there are always rumblings. And I believe they have never been more real than now. I do. I absolutely believe it. I live in Los Angeles. I'm sorry. I live in Southern California, adjacent to Los Angeles. I have family in Los Angeles, many friends in Los Angeles, people who I do business with in Los Angeles. I have an agent. I have managers. Everyone talks. Everyone listens. Everyone hears. DC Comics is doing uh, very... They are currently right now in a middling state. Uh, Sales are not great. Uh... In fact, there are rumblings that it is possible that Image Comics could be the number two possible uh, publisher as we speak. Uh, I have heard n- numbers that would frankly frighten you in regards to many DC Comics titles. It is one of the reasons that they continue to lean he- so heavily, uh, a bad, bad, bad practice that they developed under Dan DiDio to only lean on Batman rather than talk to your superiors, talk to your superiors and tell them, look, we're going we're gonna to need 18 to 20 months of, of extra patience and money and spending to get these other franchises back up and running but they lean way too much on batman and again the numbers are what the numbers are and the people within uh dc comics no longer has a they they have basically a we work type setup uh where people share desks it is as uh tiny and unrefined a uh a space a condition of publishing uh, that DC has ever experienced. They are constantly having to uh, justify their existence and maybe they'll make it out. Maybe they won't. 50-50 coin toss at this point as far as I'm concerned. Uh, 
a lot of pressure on James Gunn to deliver that seminal Superman movie that separates and and does quote unquote Marvel style business. I mean, good God, someone put forth the other day that like, what if his Superman doesn't do Man of Steel numbers, which I mean, you guys, a year ago, let me tell you this, a year ago, everyone was mocking Black Adam. Black Adam turned out to be one of the most successful DC movies of the last year. And, and DC released quite a few movies this last year and had quite a few failures. And that's just a fact. That's not my opinion. That's, that's fact. You all read about The Flash. You all read about how much money it lost and how poorly it did. Uh, and, and, and the losses continue to pile up in that regard. Costs are being cut all the time. Expenses are being trimmed. It is completely conceivable to me that in the next decade, uh, DC does enter into a, less, a licensing agreement, the likes of which Jim Shooter was approached in 1984. That is not beyond the realm of consideration. Look at what Hasbro's doing. You know, Transformers and G.I. Joe were at Marvel, you know, 40 years ago. Then they bounced around. They went to Dreamwave. They went to Image Comics, the, 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 the different, you know, G.I. Joe was at Image. It then was at, you know, it was at Dark Horse before that. Then, it, then, then they landed up at, at IDW and now they're at Skybound. If you just start to think about these characters as 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 publishing arrangements, Mourners is not going to sell the rights to Superman, Batman, the Justice League. They're going to retain those movie rights, those merchandising, in the same way that Jim Shooter was talking in 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 his blog that that they were going to maintain back in '84. But the actual publishing rights, and trust me, I have talked to a few publishers who have said they also would make millions publishing the DC line. I am not a harbinger of doom. I am not a prophet. This is my opinion. I am identifying as opinion. It is. It is. I, I am not bullish on the future of DC publishing. Uh, I don't think. I, I kind of think, in the same regards as Jim Shooter did there, that that everyone there could be doing a better job. And that is my opinion, uh, having been in this business for five decades and worked on uh, working in comics uh, quite successfully. I might add for thirty-eight years. I do not think. Uh, that my opinion is more than that. It's just an opinion, but it is shaped based on the results that I hear and stores that I talk to who tell me how down uh, so many of their DC Comics sales are. So could we live in a world where this is revisited once again? Maybe not Marvel, maybe someone else. I believe we could. I believe we could. That's my belief and I stand by it. But it is really fascinating and I'm sure you didn't know about this time in 1984 when the president of publishing at Warner Communications initiated talks and said our books are selling poorly they're losing money and we just want to license them to you because it seems like you know what you're doing I hope very much that you enjoyed this this was uh, read to you from Jim Shooter's blog uh, he he uh, recounted this about 13 years ago shared this with everyone as with so much so much else that I share on this show. It's just a matter of getting to all this stuff, all the notes, all of the uh, documents that I've been compiling over my lifetime of interest in comic books. Uh, it was just time with this extra bonus episode to share it with you, and I have, and you should chew on it. And you know what? I know Jim Shooter is going to be at the New York Comic Con. You can ask him about it. You can walk up and ask him uh, about uh, this time, and, and and he'll probably just direct you to the blog because so much of it... Uh, was detailed then. Uh, he 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 uh, runs a response to to readers 
uh, who share who shared the John Byrne plot with they they respond in mass. There's an entire entire column just dedicated to that that you may find entertaining. But there you go. 1984, DC initiated talks with Marvel to take over. Uh, could it be a harbinger of, of of an event that could happen in the future? I say it's possible. Whatever uh, that that doesn't mean to offend you as as a DC Comics person, because I can also take the counter that if that didn't happen, we don't get Dark Knight, we don't get Watchmen, we don't get all of these other amazing things, but maybe there were even more incredible things to come. You just don't know, but that's why we debate and share history on observations, and that is a story that I knew 100% that you would enjoy hearing, and I hope that uh, you enjoyed this bonus episode when Marvel was going to publish Superman. Thank you so much for listening to Observations. We come at you regularly on Tuesdays and Fridays, and now we are into these special bonus drops on weekends. Appreciate you so very much for listening, for spreading the word. Going to continue to uh, share as many Observations as possible on superheroes, comic books, in all their myriad forms, publishing uh, on film, television, video games, all of it. Again, uh, you can always... Catch me in a comic store because my work lives forever on those shelves. I did Snake Eyes Dead Game during the pandemic with IDW8. Just a fantastic experience working with Hasbro and IDW. Snake Eyes, a G.I. Joe uh, miniseries called Dead Game. I have done Major X for Marvel. I have done Deadpool Bad Blood, the number one best-selling Deadpool graphic novel Bad Blood. I just... I'm wrapping up the miniseries Deadpool Batter Blood. It is on your newsstands at your comic book shelves right now. Uh, wherever comic books, fine comic books are ordered, Deadpool Batter Blood 1, 2, 3, and 4 are out. Issue 5 comes out October 18th. I would love for you to jump on board, get all five chapters, enjoy it. Uh, th- th- there is so much more to come. Uh, my work on X Force and New Mutants uh, is, is, is well collected. It is such a blast to share comic books and comic book stories over these last 38 years with you. And I just thank you so much for coming along with the ride in comic books as well as this podcast. You can catch me on social media on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Got a little blue check. Tells you it's really, really me. I, I know they call it X now. I still call it Twitter. It's, it's going to take a while. But at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D is where you'll find me. I love reading your comments, your uh, messages, the back and forth DMs. Thank you so much for interacting with me over on Twitter. On Instagram, it's just at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Another blue check signifies that I am the real deal. This is the uh, genuine article that you are talking to over on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. I have my photo diary of my life, my pictures, what I'm doing, who I'm hanging out with, family, friends, uh, places I've been, places I'm going, uh, the the work that I'm doing, drawings. Currently in the middle of Robtober where I'm drawing a picture every day of the month of October. Hope to catch you over on Instagram. Facebook, I have a group. It's called Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond. It's a group over on Facebook. It's Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. We moderate and administrate that group so you'll see our names. You'll know it's us when we click you on through if you submit to join the group. And we hope to find you over there. So many of the discussions that we have here continue over there. There's art contests, uh, sharing of comics, of art. Just a really good time, really good people, really great vibes. We keep it super positive at Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme, and beyond. One of the very biggest shows uh, in in the uh, comic book world, the pop culture world, 
is the New York Comic Convention. It is happening the week of October like 12th through 15th. I believe I've got those dates right. October 12th through 15th at the Javits Center in beautiful New York City. I will be in Artist Alley. The Artist Alley at New York Comic Con is like a convention to and of it, uh, unto itself. It is massive. It is bigger than most other shows. Literally, you'll see. There, there, there will be umpteen thousands of people down there. I am so fortunate. I will be at the Hot Flips booth in Artist Alley. I am booth number 1A11. Number 1A11, I'm right when you enter Artist Alley, right there at the top. Um, I think there's two different entrances. I'm over towards, I think, the more left. But you, you won't miss me. We're in the, the, the front section. It's a big, big artist alley. You got to go deep, 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 deep uh, further down. But I am right there at the top. Can't wait to see you. We've got all sorts of new exclusives and variants. We have our Captain America number one that is making its debut there. I have tons of uh, X-Force and Deadpool and Image Comics exclusives that I would love to share with you. Come see me. Even just say hi. You know what? Let me tell you something. Just telling a comic creator that you enjoy their work. I do it all the time. I go and I see people who, whose work I enjoy and I tell them, hey man, I love what you're doing. Great work. Uh, it means as much as buying anything from them. I, I believe you, believe me when I tell you, believe me when I tell you that it means so much when you express your uh, affection for what we do. So I look forward to seeing you at New York Comic Con. I'll be there all four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Can't wait to see you and uh, sh share just a great time with you. Again, I am in Artist Alley. I am hosted by the Hot Flips, the wonderful people at Hot Flips. Their booth is number 1A11, and I look so much forward to seeing you at the New York Comic Con. Hey, uh, again, bonus episodes are just that. They're a bonus. They're not guaranteed, but we've done back-to-back, uh, -back, and I hope that you enjoyed them. These, this was a crazy episode, right? It, it, it was the right time to share it with you. As always, I am rooting for you. I hope you are doing spectacularly. I hope you are doing uh, so well that your mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional being are, are exactly where you need them to be. And if not, take some time off. Recline. Uh, get in that beanbag chair, that that sofa chair, that 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 big giant couch, and just lose yourself in it. Watch something fun. Eat something fun. Hang out with your friends. Get away from the grind, the treadmill of the uh, of, of life that can grind us. Hey. That is my wish for you. Fist bump, boom, through the mic. Thanks for joining us. See you again on Observations. We are on Tuesdays and Wednesdays on all pod, podcast platforms. Uh, swing back around. I will be waiting for you because we most certainly, absolutely, and inevitably will talk again real soon.